Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers. Recently, I had the chance to talk to author Gareth Murphy about his fascinating new book, Cowboys and Indies, the Epic History of the Record Industry. While music is an integral part of our daily lives, very little is really known about the revolutionary men and women on both sides of the Atlantic who founded and shaped this enduring industry from the invention of the earliest known sound recording device all the way back in 1850s Paris, all the way through to the CD crash and digital boom today. Murphy takes us on an immensely entertaining and encyclopedic ride through the many musical, cultural, and technological changes that have shaped a century and a half of the music business. I began my interview with Gareth Murphy by asking him why he decided to write the entire history of the record industry. Oh, to be honest with you, I, there wasn't really um, there wasn't really a plan. <laughs> I think like most things in life, you just start to do something and then suddenly you start to dig. And it was only after about three months when I started digging further and further backwards that I realized, you know, maybe I'm going the wrong direction here. (laughs) Um, But I think the joke was when I found what I was looking for, I realized there's usually a logic to all madness, um, although it doesn't, you don't know it when you begin. And I think it was really when I started finding out about the record, the first record crash, um, the first forgotten record crash, then I realized, okay, this makes sense why I'm, you know, walking in the wrong direction. Because, I mean, I, st- I think I, in retrospect, I think I started the book simply because, I mean, working as a producer has just been so tough, basically, for the last few years. Um, since about 2006, 2007, I'm sure it's the same for all sort of small producers. It's just really, really hard. And I became a father uh, in 2009. And I suppose like all people with, you know, a first kid, I just sort of, I guess I panicked. And um, I think I needed to know, was there a future in the music business? I think it's, it's obvious now that I finished the book that what I was really looking for, I think I was looking for personal answers. And uh, I think I did find them in the, in the distant past, you know, that what we're experiencing now is not actually that exceptional. It's pretty exceptional, but it's not a first. Let's talk about this crash that, that you just uh, made reference to. So we're talking about the late 1920s, uh, the, the emergence of radio, and then uh, the Great Depression. I did not realize that in a period of, what, three years or so, that record sales basically dried up, going from a hundred and over 100 million units in 1927 down to 10 million in 1930. Give, give us some background around this. I had no idea this yeah. had happened. Yeah, it was an absolute collapse. I mean, even by the cruel norms of the Great Depression, there was no crash in the Great Depression as spectacular as the music industry. It just absolutely died. But it didn't quite die. There was a bit of a pulse. (laughs) And that's the interesting part. The the main reasons for it, I mean, it's like a perfect storm. All of these sort of... um, uh, catastrophes do happen like perfect storms. There's obviously the major thing was technology, radio. Radio made the gramophone or, or with a phonograph. Um, it looked, made it look very old and it made it obsolete. Um, all the new generation, the, the way radio blew up actually in the, in the 1920s was exactly like the internet recently. It was teenagers. It was young 
kids, basically, um, that were crazy about radios, that didn't have the record-buying habit like their parents did. And it was just a massive technological and, I would say, intergenerational sort of rupture where kids were just, there was a massive, massive rejection of Victorian values around the 1920s. This is the jazz generation, obviously. Um, women dressed differently. Everything was different. This was a huge, huge rupture uh, between the old world and the new world. And the radio was seen as something new, something exciting, um, something technologically amazing. And the phonograph was seen as just this sort of, you know, something your grandparents listened to. And it became hugely, hugely uh, unfashionable. And once, uh, so the record industry was already in a terrible situation throughout the 1920s. Every year was just worse and worse and worse. Um, and then the Wall Street crash came along, and that was just it. You know, that was, the, the record industry is so precarious. Like, you need to have the help of banks. You need to be able to borrow money to be able to re make records. So the 1929 crash was just catastrophic. But like I said, the sickness was already there and the 1920s, and then you had this massive, massive collapse. How did it survive? Tell us about uh, how it managed to survive the Great Depression and who were some of the key figures yeah. who, who kept it alive and some of the, the people who date back, whose work dates back to the 1930s, so fascinated by uh, what you have to say about John Hammond who uh, really got yeah. his start in the 1930s, right? Exactly. The 1930s was a very difficult, and it's an interesting lesson for, I think, for future generations, for our own generation, which is that in times of crises and in times of depression, it's usually actually when things, when the future is made, because things are so tough today, just like they were in the Great Depression, it's only really the true music lovers who stick around. Um, and I certainly see that today in the music business, whether it's radio or whether it's uh, music production. I mean, times are so hard now that the only people who have stuck around are people who really believe in what they're doing. And that was the case in the 1930s. John Hammond was obviously a hugely important person in the renaissance um, of the record business. But not just him. I mean, John Hammond, just, well, just, just to give you, I mean, your, your listeners um, uh, some names, I mean, he found Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Count Basie, and then later, as an older man, went on to find um, and sign Bob Dylan, uh, Leonard Cohen, Bruce Springsteen. So the, the guy is like, um, he's like the trunk of a tree, a genealogical tree. Um, hugely, probably the most important person in the entire music business history. And as I said, he started as a writer, um, which was interesting because there's a lot of writers, actually, a lot of journalists and uh, researchers uh, who are extremely important in the music business because finding music is exactly the same as, you know, researching stories. You know, you're going to have to go out there and, you know, find answers. And he was very good at that. He went out to clubs. He went to the fringes. He, he basically stalked speakeasy clubs every night, and he just never stopped going out and finding stuff. But there was another aspect as well to the 1930s Renaissance, um, which was jukeboxes. Um, once uh, Prohibition ended in 1933, um, speakeasies were allowed to make noise again, and uh, it's I was from 1933 that Wurlitzer began their, their early jukeboxes. And that was a hugely important market to help record companies just have sales because this became cool. Uh, this was the new gadget, I suppose, of the 1930s. We associate jukeboxes with the 1940s and 50s, but actually it began the 1930s. And that was hugely important. But I think the, ultimately the thing that really saved the record industry 
and it's horrible to say it, but it was actually World War II. Uh, it was when the world was plunged into another massive crisis that music became an important medicine again. And sales just took off with, as war got really bad. People needed music. Hmm. Is it the same way that uh, people that movie people would flock to movie theaters as well? You needed some escape from reality, and like you, you had in movie theaters, you had an escape in music, and then these you know sentimental songs that you uh, would write about, songs that made people uh, think about uh, those overseas. You talk about uh, oh, that Vera Lynn track, you know, and many many others from that time frame, right? Yeah, absolutely. The 1940s is interesting because it's very feminine. I never really saw. The, the music of the 1940s in such a way, but because men were away, either fighting or basically in ser- around working around the military doing service for the military, the 1940s market was basically women mm. buying a lot of records. Um, and uh, there was, um, you know, a, a sort of a homely, there's a homely sort of soft and a longing in all that 1940s music, which uh, I never really noticed until I started to put it in its context, until I started to write this book, Glenn Miller, um, The Andrews Sisters. There's some very good stuff in the 1940s, um, but that was, like I said, that was the big renaissance. That's when the music business came back to life, as big as it was before. And it just goes to show generations like we have now is that there's no way of knowing what's going to happen next in the music business. You can, things can seem obsolete, but it's, you know, after 15 years of being obsolete, you know, the records, records came back um, bigger than before. Um, and there's no reason to believe today, for example, that some new physical format, it might not be CDs, but some new physical format might, you know, just suddenly come back because the next generation, faced with a whole other set of, circumstances might suddenly decide that they want the real thing again yeah right right let's jump forward a couple of decades here always a delight to read uh, about motown here being uh, right next to detroit in ann arbor and i thought i knew uh, just about everything there was to know about barry gordy but boy you dug up some really fascinating things about uh his family and about uh, what led them to move up to detroit from uh, georgia right yeah I mean, I didn't know that either. That was, I thought that was very, very interesting, the whole um, the, the Gordy family story. I mean, I didn't know much about Booker T. Washington and the whole philosophy um, of Booker T. Washington and how it differed from um, other, I would just say, black rights that, that were popular at the time, the, the NAACP. Um, and it's true that now when I listen to Motown, I hear that sort of optimism, that sort of can-do attitude. There's these, this was a family with a lot of self-confidence, um, very, very hard-working. Um, they helped a lot of people. They were a real local clan. Um, and their story went very deep. I mean, there's three generations. I mean, there's three, you know, Barry Gordy was the third Barry in, of that Gordy family, and they were wealthy black people who had to leave uh, the South, because they were too rich, actually, they were actually scared for their own safety because they were so successful. And that's an unusual story. Um, but it, I think it explains a lot. And I think that their optimism and their can-do attitude was very contagious. Everyone who, who worked for the Motown label all said, you know, once you walked into that place, there was just this atmosphere in the family that anything was possible. They really knew how to fire people up, and they were very optimistic people and extremely hardworking. Um, 
And I think it's an amazing story, actually, about um, uh, the story, certainly, of black music and black people. I mean, Motown is so, so important in that change from the 1950s world to the 1970s world, which is very different. I'm a huge fan as as well of uh, Electra Records and this this genius mastermind Jack Holzman. And again, we got a big uh, Detroit Ann Arbor connection because it was on that great great label that uh, we had the MC5 and and the Stooges yeah. signed. Um, talk about this uh, this man Jack Holzman. I I just admire this guy so so much. And there's a you have a quote from him where he says where there is a when there is an element of danger that attracts me. You know that that that's that leads me towards an artist as someone who I may be interested in signing. I, and you know, a lot of business people they they run away from danger and they'll they'll run away from things that are scary or out of the ordinary. And Jack is just like, bring it, bring it on. I just gotta love a person like this. Yeah, no, he's and interestingly enough, um, Jack Holtzman actually began his career in the sort of the whole folk scene of Greenwich Village, and this was in the 1950s. So it was interesting because by the time um, the sort of um, counterculture blew up, I mean, he, was no, he was, wasn't that young anymore. Uh, he'd been around, he'd seen the whole folk scene. But I think that folk music, the folk music of the, uh, I would say, the 50s and the early 60s, I never really thought that stuff like the Velvet Underground and MC5 and Iggy Pop that would actually came from that sort of line. Uh, but it did, really. Um, and looking behind the music business, looking, seeing all the people who are operating behind the scenes, you realize that, you know, um, it was from basically sort of Bob Dylan's group um, around Newport and that whole Electra scene, that the whole sort of punk and really hard, rough side of the counterculture, because it's amazing to think that the Stooges, you know, it was 1967, 68, and yet their sound is so, it's 10 years ahead of its time. Um, but all of that stuff, as I said, did come from Electra, which was a folk label to begin with. Um, but I think that the folk attitude, and again, we see that even with uh, CBGB, was that CBGB in New York was obviously um, a place synonymous with punk. Um, but it itself was run by an old folk guy. Um, and I think it's an interesting folk attitude that f- the folk music basically believes um, that you know, every city and every place has its own story to tell. Um, and it's not about the big cities. It's not about, you know, L.A. or New York. It's just about anyone with a story to tell. And Jack Holzman, I know, and a lot of the people who, who began with folk are very conscious of that, that you can find great stuff in any city, in any, anywhere in the world. Um, but the folk thing is all about the stories of the street, the stories of the local town. Um, and I, that's how they saw... You know, um, the Stooges and MC5, it was the sound of Detroit at a particular time. Once uh, Jack moved out to the West Coast, you know, that that's where he locked on to love. And then uh, after that, the Doors, who were, you know, revolutionary bands. And, I mean, it's just so sad that love never, and still to this day, have not gotten the... Uh, attention that they really really deserve but man the doors certainly have and yeah your your tales of how uh, jack dealt with or or decided not to deal with uh, jim morrison of the doors is pretty fascinating it's kind of a hands-off label guy where it was like i don't want to get too close to some of these artists some of some of that stuff is a little scary about uh, him not yeah. intervening with uh, jim morrison who was just a disastrous drunk after a while yeah. right Absolutely. Jim Morrison is a pretty sad story. The thing, I, the thing I was surprised to find about The Doors, I mean, I'm a big Doors fan, 
But I never would have thought that that Van, um, sorry, Van Morrison, that Jim Morrison uh, was an ambitious person. I never sort of saw him in that way. Um, but when you talk to people who worked at Electra, they say, no, 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 you know, Jim Morrison was very conscious of his image, and that might explain why the Doors have done so well and that Love didn't. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the Doors were very, very, they wanted to be famous. Jim Morrison in particular wanted to be famous. Um, and I think he realized, um, those around him all say that, you know, he was very conscious of the bad boy image. He kind of played it. Uh, he got drunk on purpose, not because he wanted to get drunk. Well, he probably did. I think he was an alcoholic, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it was more just he wanted to do it in public. He wanted people to see him in a state um, and just be completely outrageous and just absolutely embarrass rooms and just be, you know, the center of everyone's attention. And so I can understand that, you know, a lot of these label guys, as I said, they weren't that young when the counterculture hit. They'd been around, they'd been around since the 1950s, so they're probably you know, late 30s, early 40s, they have kids, and they just don't have the patience for these guys like Jim Morrison who are in their mid-20s and are on an absolute self-destruction ride. Um, and that's one thing I did notice that with all of the labels, not just Electra, with Atlantic as well, uh, A&M, a lot of the, the label bosses had great difficulty being patient and understanding with these artists because things did get ugly pretty fast. I mean, the drugs, it all went from peace and love to sort of hard drugs very quickly. Um, and I think a lot of the label bosses, um, which surprised me greatly, was they were all quite anti-drugs. I mean, they've all dabbled in drugs, obviously. But I think they saw too many train wrecks to actually, to you know, to sort of laugh about it. You know, I didn't hear much laughing when I interviewed all these guys about drugs. They were all very... Um, they were all very conscious of what kind of damage it can do to, to great to great artists. You know how many great careers were cut short because they just you know, like Jim Morrison just went too far. Take us into the 1970s. So many colorful and important figures in the industry. You write about Seymour Stein, Richard Branson, uh, Jeff Travis of Rough Trade, Dave Robinson of Stick of Stiff Records, founder of that label. Pick one of these folks and talk a little bit more about the influence and the lives and the the people that they signed. Uh, was there anyone that really jumped out as a as a more intriguing figure than the others? For we're talking about you know the punk and new wave days yeah. starting in the 1970s and beyond, Gareth? Yeah, I think there was, is one of the things that was interesting was that I think um, from the 70s, certainly it was beginning in the 60s, but in the 70s you see a real ping-pong effect between England and America. Um, I think in the media, we uh, certainly in Britain, Britain has, the Brit Britain's media has a tendency to think only of Britain, and America's media has a tendency to think only of America. But the music business is very much a transatlantic thing. All of these guys are constantly traveling between, you know, either L.A. and London or New York and London, and they really have an ear for, you know, the times in general. And one thing that's interesting about the 1970s, certainly, is when you have Sire in New York, and Sire is the group that signed the Ramones, then Talking Heads, um, Patti Smith's first recording. So it's kind of the label that's really on, this, you know, uh, CBGB, that whole scene. Stiff Records is the pioneer label in Britain that's doing all the early punk, uh, English punk. It didn't get the Sex Pistols, but they got the Damned, um, the, uh, sorry, Madness, Ian Dury, Elena Lovitch, a lot of the English kind of new wave stuff. 
And they're both going on at the same time. And I think that's a major shift um, in the music business because it really is the end of the whole hippie period. Uh, Once punks come along, and there's disco happening as well at the same time, obviously, in America. Disco and punk are happening in the late 70s. But I think punk, um, in many ways, as I said, it really kills the whole, you know, peace and love (laughs) vibe, obviously. And it marks the beginning of the 80s, a completely different period. Um, And it brings maybe music, again, we go back to the folk thing. I mean, Seymour Stein and Dave Robinson, the the boss of Stiff Records, again, they're both quite folky. They're both very much people of the street, didn't go to university. Um, They're very, they're travelers. Uh, They're interested in the stories of the street again. And I think with that sort of rupture of the punk rupture, it was the end of sort of musical virtuosity. If you look at all the you know progressive rock of the of the sort of 70s, mid 70s, it's all about being a brilliant musician. And there were a lot of brilliant bands around then, but it got a bit, it went a bit too far. You know, sort of 10 minute songs. You know, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I mean, we all remember that period. Um, but, you know, the punk thing took things back to basics. It was very DIY, you know. Um, anyone could be in a punk band. And it maybe infused a bit of sort of... Um, it made music accessible again, because the punks was all about anyone can be a pop star, just like it was on the rock and roll thing in the 1950s. You know, Elvis and that whole generation was all about just like anyone can be a pop star now. And the punk thing did the same thing again. It took a lot of power back to uh, not necessarily great musicians, but people with stories to tell, and indies, small labels, because the 1970s was a period in which the majors became very powerful. So um, I think the late 70s is a very interesting period in music that's often overlooked. We always talk about the 60s, and obviously the 60s is absolutely amazing. You know, it really probably can't be beaten, but the late 70s had a lot of really interesting music as well. So uh, look into the crystal ball, Gareth. What are, what are we looking at over the next decade or so in terms of music? What's, what's going to uh, dominate? The, any, any thoughts about this? Is it going to be electronic dance music? Are we going to keep the, the you know, bands like Mumford & Sons, this return to roots, return to folk? Is it going to be something that none of us have even uh, imagined yet? What, what, what do you see as some of the trends that are going to be well, happening and how viable of an industry this is? So many people continue to lose their jobs because people just don't feel like they need to pay for music anymore. Yeah. I think, certainly on the industry side, I mean, um, before uh, anything can be... I I think that the industry is at a critical moment at the moment, which is similar to the late 30s, after the last crash. The last crash, what happened was, without going back too much into history, but it's exactly what's happened today, the, the radio corporations at first didn't care about record companies going bust. They really didn't care. Re- radio corporations were making so much money. It was a huge boom in the 1930s. They just didn't care. They just trucked on and, you know, flattened anything in their path. But they slowly realized, oh, maybe we actually do need music to keep growing. And suddenly, radio corporations started being a lot nicer. They started buying labels, they started investing in new studios, helping the almost dead record industry to get up off its feet and start making music again. And I think we're seeing the same thing now with the IT corporations, because companies, you know, like Google, like Apple, like Microsoft, uh, Amazon, 
they've been on an absolutely gung-ho charge into the future for the last 15 years. They didn't care what they trampled on. They got to the top, and now they're at the top. Now they've got more money than God. Um, they're slowly realizing that they actually need hot content to stay on top. They can't just, you know, you can't... So I, just, I, I'm, I notice at the moment that there's a huge, um, you know, tide change, a sea change in the music business where the IT world and record producers are realizing they need each other. The years of hating each other um, are finished, and they realize they actually both need each other. So there is going to be more opportunity, I think. Things are definitely going to pick up. As for the question of what type of music, the A&R question, I'll be honest with you, I really haven't a clue. <laughs> and I wish I knew, because the next person... The next person who finds the next big thing is going to be a very rich man. He's going to have a lot of fun. But I think ultimately, I mean, it's, I'm not being very specific here, but I think ultimately that we're obviously going to get back to songwriting, to songs, to writing in general. Um, I think the last period that we've been through has been pretty poor musically. Um, and it's all the hangover from the 1990s. We're still living today with all the mistakes made of the corporate era um, the end of the CD, the before the crash, we're all still living with the consequences of sort of plastic music, a generation that was fed on what I call the musical equivalent of fast food. Um, and we're still sort of living with those consequences. What I'm interested in, and I think the big, the million-dollar question, if not the billion-dollar question, is what about the kids who are now sort of, like my son, aged five, six, seven, eight, that kind of age group, they're not going to be the same at all, as the kids who are now 20 years of age. And who knows what lies in store. I mean, the biggest hit, when I saw my son and his, and his class going crazy about the music from the film Frozen, I mean, it's Broadway. Um, you know, yeah. that surprised me. It's like basically a Broadway musical. It's an old-fashioned Broadway musical. And the kids went absolutely nuts for that song. Um, so you realize that it might not be EDM at all. In fact, it might even be the exact opposite. 